0: Welcome to the This Is So Exhausting podcast, where we offer an insight from some of the industry's leading experts and how they see the future of the emissions industry developing.
1: I am Tim Chain,
0: And I'm George Ade Onajobi.
1: And today we have the privilege of having Phil Blakeman join us on the pod. Hello, Phil. Hello. Um, good to see you. Thanks for joining us uh, today. It's really good to be talking about some of the key issues that face that face us as we look into uh, how these industries and technologies are going to be developing in the future. Uh, by way of some introduction uh, to our listeners, Phil has many years of experience helping Johnson Matthey Matthew develop uh, new markets and customers around the world. Looking back at your CV, Phil, you've, you really did come through the ranks at Johnson You were You were involved in the research and development chemistry side, and then you've been based in different offices around the world. Um, And being very uh, deeply involved in uh, technologies like starting up the heavy duty diesel emissions control markets um, and being involved in major growth opportunities in China and India. And um, more recently, Phil has taken a wider interest in sustainable business leadership and is actually currently studying for a master's in that topic at Cambridge University. And you speak today from Cambridge. So hello, Phil. And welcome to the This Is So Exhausting podcast again. How are you today?
2: Uh, Very well. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, George. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Great to be here today.
0: No, Phil. It's a a real privilege to have you on today. So thanks very much for making time for us. Um, Now, on the This Is So Exhausting podcast, the first segment we like to do to get things going um, is the This Is So Exhausting segment. And I'll quickly explain that for... Our listeners, um, this is where we tell a fun story of what is exhausting or not so exhausting in your in your current life today. So, so Phil, what's what is exhausting you at the moment?
2: Uh, I have to say that through all these uh, pandemic lockdowns, uh, working out what to cook at home three times a day, seven days a week, uh, that is uh, that is starting to get quite challenging. Uh, so the weekly takeaway order is a real celebration event now.
0: So what, what, when you say those three dishes a day for seven days, what are some of the, give us an idea of what are some of the go-to dishes you have for, for lunch or dinner?
2: I, I, well, for example, last night, uh, um, I spent many years living in China and I make a mean mapo tofu. So yeah. uh, that's, uh, that's one of the go-to ones, quite quick to make a spicy tofu uh, on rice. Uh, dish uh, and uh, relatively easy, uh, and then there's just a lot of uh, you know vegetable stews, ratatouille, uh, simple, simple things that
0: uh, uh, don't take too much time to prep uh, but taste well. I'm gonna have to Google that dish. I've never heard of it, and <laughs> I'm in I'm in China, and I should know, right? George? <laughs> I recommend it, George. I recommend it. If you like spicy, definitely, definitely like spicy. And then what's the, what's the go-to? What's your favourite takeaway you, you frequent?
2: Uh, well, I, I I like two things, really, from a takeaway. One is uh, good old English fish and chips. Oh, yeah. uh, can't beat it. We've got a really good one down the road from us here. Uh, and then an Indian, Indian curry. Uh, again, very fortunate to have some really good choice of that just
0: nearby. So uh, uh, those are my go-tos. Awesome. What about you, Tim? What, what, what have you been eating over the lockdown period?
1: Oh, it's the same as full, Really, it does get quite tiring uh, being at home and having to do all the cooking and not getting much variety. But we do enjoy a takeaway, and uh, my traditional favourite would be the uh, the usual the usual curry takeaway. But um, having teenage girls, it's quite it switched to chicken katsu curry. That's become our new oh, wow. go to takeaway, um, and uh, they love that. So that's uh, normally a weekly choice. Not bad interesting
0: uh well my this is a exhausting story kind of flows in the theme today in terms of industry transition and it's to do with my electric bike uh which i bought six months ago um now i don't know if you if you know much about china um listeners out there that electric bike is is one of the go-to methods of of transport out here um I've had my bike for six months. I should know that it needs a charge. It's not a car that you can, you know, if you don't have battery or don't have electricity, you can just go to the petrol station. Whereas I was going to my friend's house the other day um, and I got to the bike and I only had 15%. So (laughs) I had to change my plan entirely uh, and jump in a taxi. And it kind of flows into what we're talking about today. You know how we have to perhaps change our mindsets and how we do things. And uh, you know, do we have to remember to to charge our cars when we wake up in the morning? Some things we don't think about now, we might have to think about in the future. Um, But that is certainly my so exhausting uh, story, where I have to carry around my bike charger pretty much everywhere I go, or or try and remember to charge my my bike. I have no excuse. My app, my there's I have an app on my phone that tells me the battery life on my, on my, on my bike, but still I fail, I fail to, to, to succeed. So, but we'll transition into some questions. I'm so really, really keen to hear from you, Phil, of course, with your years of experience. And it's quite funny that with your you know, experience in China and India, you still eat Chinese and Indian food back home, but, um, um I'll hand over to you, Tim, to ask, uh, Phil some good questions.
1: Great. So, uh... I suggest we start with a general, a broader question. Um, and I was just thinking that probably the fa- first time I met you, and certainly going back to the early days of your career, the transportation industry and vehicle production was quite one-dimensional. You know, there was um, a diesel engine for a heavy-duty truck. There was normally a, a gasoline engine for a car. Um, but we see that changing really quickly, uh, maybe even accelerated during this lockdown period uh, because of perceptions that people have of what can change um, and so we all, we all see the rapid change going on uh, in in the application of technologies and the future of transportation so how do you see this evolving in the future how do you see the world becoming different um, and where do you, you know, where do you think the, the lead technologies will find a home in the future?
2: Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Tim. It's uh, it's interesting actually reflecting back at the uh, at the start of my own career, uh, where we came into heavy duty diesel emissions uh, market development. Uh, there were no catalysts on diesel trucks back in the 2000, 2002, uh, and uh, people were saying this can't fit on a truck. It's too heavy on a truck. Uh, we can't put urea. On a truck, it's like putting a chemicals plant on a vehicle, uh, and of course, all those things and more uh, happened uh, happened globally. Uh, happened uh, in the course of about 15 years. Uh, um, so, uh, so change. Even though that was a, a smaller level of change, than we're talking about uh, today, uh, change is is constant, and uh, sometimes the unexpected, the science fiction, actually rapidly becomes uh, reality. So I think we have to bear that in mind uh, as we as we talk about this conversation uh, now. And uh, certainly, um, we're clearly seeing this uh, uh, climate change-driven shift from fossil fuels as the main propulsion energy to electricity as uh, the main, uh, main propulsion energy. Uh, stumble over my words there. Uh, and uh, I certainly expect that batteries... Are going to be the uh, technology of choice for the for the next uh, period of time in the transport area. Uh, the, uh, um, you know, there's lots of uh, uh, other options as well around hydrogen fuel cells. Um, but I don't see those being the mainstream choice for cars or, or trucks uh, in, uh, uh,
1: in, in the next 20 30 years. Interesting that that you say that. Do you, do you, there's still some, I think, some debates in the industry about um, the potential role of hydrogen in, in road transport fuels. Uh, there's the Nikolai uh, project or company in the US looking still looking to develop the hydrogen semi. How, how do you see, how, do you see hydrogen having a role, hydrogen fuel cell having a role uh, even in the heavier end of, of road transport, or do you think we're going to see a, sh- a shift to, across the battery quite quickly, given that battery costs are dropping and uh, economies of scale and all those issues are, are playing into, into the costs of, uh, of fuel, of, of battery cells?
2: Mm. Yeah, I think, uh, I think for me, the big driver around uh, hydrogen is that is that bigger sort of global shift towards net zero carbon emissions, uh, and the... Uh, need to use renewable electricity as efficiently as possible. I mean, there's some projections which have energy demand doubling globally uh, by 2050. So that's doubling from where we are today. And that's a huge amount of renewable energy to try and generate in that time frame to meet net zero. Uh, therefore any renewable energy which we put in has to be used as efficiently as we possibly can Uh, and I think uh, the the challenge for hydrogen in that period is that using uh, uh, renewable electricity to make clean green hydrogen uh, and then transporting that hydrogen into a vehicle for power we we lose a lot of that energy along the way just through uh, efficiency losses through that supply chain compared to using renewable electricity uh, going through a wire straight to the grid into a battery. And so for for mainstream uh, cars and trucks, uh, I think it's better for us to have batteries uh, as the most efficient use of uh, renewable energy. And hydrogen is perhaps best used in heavy industry uh, and heat applications, maybe some quite niche uh, high power uh, uh, applications uh, uh, to replace uh, internal internal combustion engines, uh, because that's you know the special skill of hydrogen. You can't use electricity in much of those uh, uh, areas to decarbonize, but you can use hydrogen. So that's the most effective, efficient deployment through this transition period for me.
1: Yeah, that's a really good way of seeing it. I think from uh, from my point of view uh, here at Argus, we're very involved in the supply side of this hydrogen issue uh, in, in the sense that there are some parts of the world which have the potential for producing renewable energy, but that, that energy, that renewable power could be stranded just because of where it is, like in, the, in in the Australian situation or some parts of the Middle East or the Sahara even potentially. You could have a situation there where hydrogen becomes a good energy carrier. Um, in fact, lots of people are looking at converting that hydrogen into ammonia and then moving the ammonia more easily to heavy industrial industrial applications, like you've described, which would then be using carbon-free energy. Um, and I, so, I do agree. I think that might be where we see that application of of hydrogen or or ammonia. Um, we even see a lot of interest on uh, in the maritime industry for for uh, for using green ammonia as a as a way of propulsion energy for 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 vessels. But just just to wrap that conversation up, it sounds like you you see the the shift across to battery electric being the predominant trend uh, in the next decades. Um, But let's let's look to the transition period, because that's where the complexity comes. Uh, All Mm. of us are going to have to be involved, not just in one thing, but many. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about the the supply industry, because um, of course the vehicle manufacturers are in a very difficult period of transition, having to produce across lots of platforms and technologies. But a lot of our audience and 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 the folk we interact with are involved in, uh, particularly in technology supply for after-treatment systems or emissions control systems. What's your thinking about how they approach the future? You know, if you're a supplier company that has uh, emissions control catalysts, but also the technologies for electric vehicles, uh, very well placed, I guess, for the future. Some companies are more tied to traditional emissions control. How do you see their role in the future? How would you see them uh, making the most of their opportunities? Yeah, I think uh, the, um, the whole emissions
2: control industry has had a wonderful uh, contribution to, uh, to, to to human life and, and air quality. Uh, and there's been some fan- fabulous uh, technological developments actually along the way there when you look at a, a three way catalyst, uh, and what that can do at the temperatures it operates a range of conditions to remove CO, hydrocarbon and NOx to a chemist to do those three things at the same time is pretty remarkable. Uh, and some of the SCR technologies on the diesel side, again, uh, uh, the way in which they can Operate under a wide range of uh, conditions is, and, and give very very high uh, uh, pollution removal rates is, is, is absolutely remarkable. And the technological breakthroughs which have been triggered by uh, the auto industry and the emissions control industry to meet these uh, air pollution challenges uh, is, is is really really fabulous. Um, I think the uh, the challenge going forward, uh, uh, you know, ultimately the chemistry is fairly simple. You're talking about changing gaseous pollutants, CO, hydrocarbon, NOx, into other gaseous pollutants, uh, and then doing some filtration of, of particulate. So it's uh, so the chemistry reactions are, are very, fairly clear, and the products which are in place now are absolutely excellent at doing those chemical reactions as i said under that wide range of conditions so the challenge now i think is to continue to iterate that performance forward Uh, it never stops uh, and uh, legislation which is continually getting tighter around the world uh, requires that uh, you eke out every little performance gain uh, to to meet that legislation but also the whole system design needs to be uh, Optimized and, and really taken uh, creatively forward. Uh, we've seen some uh, announcements uh, recently of double urea injection systems, for example, uh, which uh, is one way of uh, of helping uh, um, address uh, those tighter and tighter emissions legislations. So uh, it's not, you know, in reinventing uh, a brand new products, but it is using the system design uh, in a Uh, in a different and and, and more effective way. So I think the challenge going forward for for sort of component manufacturers uh, and catalyst manufacturers is to continue to get that innovation, that sort of systems uh, uh, work and development um, in the most efficient way as the – uh, industry transitions more and more into uh, uh, you know, electric vehicles which do not need those those sorts of uh, solutions to make them clean. Uh, one way to do that is to maximise the number of uh, platforms or, or vehicles which uh, a single sort of system design can be applicable to. And certainly that was something which uh, we saw happen in China and India as stage six came Uh, We saw much more standard solutions for the emissions control system being deployed across a wide range of vehicles, even across multiple companies in in, uh, some situations uh, as a way of uh, rationalizing the the cost effectiveness uh, of the effort, as opposed to optimizing each individual uh, specific uh, um, application down to the nth degree and, and, and saving Costs
1: in that sense. Yeah, that's going to have to be the case, I guess. Is cost efficiency? You have to say it's difficult at a time when there'll be more and more technical requirements placed on on the technology in terms of boundary conditions, uh, emissions mm. limits, durability. You know, all the uh, all the issues that the, these, all the parameters these systems have to deliver on. So I guess the companies that are too focused on a niche or a narrow application or very specific. Uh, vehicle types will be the ones that struggle compared to those that can can find solutions with a very broad application, would you say? I I think
2: that's likely. And uh, I I think even without the transition of the paratrain side, the complexity of the legislation and uh, um, meeting all these different sorts of conditions would have driven a certain amount of rationalization of the solutions of the systems uh, to be more broadly applicable. Uh, I think the uh, transition to electrification is just exacerbating that trend, to be honest.
0: In in terms of that transition to electrification, uh, Phil, uh, you may have seen that Joe Biden recently pledged to replace the US government's fleet of roughly 650 vehicles with electric models. 650,000. Yes, (laughs) 650,000. (laughs) (laughs) I thought to make it easy for, for him, but no, it is, it is indeed 650,000 vehicles with electric models, which is a huge number. Um, but quite interestingly, they haven't actually confirmed over what timeline. Um, but closer to home, and new cars and vans that are wholly powered by. Petrol or diesel will not be sold in the UK from 2030, which Boris Johnson announced a couple of months ago. Uh, some, some manufacturers have suggest, suggested that a phasing out in the next ten years isn't really attainable. Uh, I'd be interested to know how fast you feel see um, electrification occur.
2: Mm. Well, I'd be reluctant to put a, 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 an actual time frame on it, but it is certainly an immense challenge. Um, you know, we've obviously got to uh, create these these new technologies, the capacity to make them, uh, develop the infrastructure that supports their their use in the market, uh, and uh, you know all of that industrial capacity needs to be uh, put on the ground, while we manage the risks of doing that. You know this is uh, uh, we're not going into this blind in terms of the environmental and social risks associated with you know rapid increases in mineral extraction for battery. Uh, materials, for example. So we've got a lot of risk management to do while we expand at speed uh, in order to address this. But it it really comes down to uh, um, the costs of climate change just being too great not to try our hardest. Um, If you read the news, everything about climate change just seems to be moving faster and faster uh, in the environment. Uh, and certainly uh, feels faster than the IPCC scenarios assume. Uh, plus those net zero scenarios actually substantially rely on carbon capture technologies, which aren't really uh, developed yet, uh, certainly not at commercial scale. So we're already a bit you know, you know, further behind the curve than we uh, than we might think. So the risk of tipping the planetary system out of equilibrium, uh, Potentially, uh, uh, it's quite unpredictable. No one really knows what will happen in those complex systems. Uh, Could be very devastating, could be irreversible. Uh, So, once we change it, we may not be able to pull it back to an environment like we know today. Uh, It really sort of says we have to try our absolute hardest to avoid that risk. You know, there is no good business in a future of planetary strife and anguish. So, we have to try our hardest to introduce technologies, even if they're going to cause a bit of a difference or experience in our behaviour. And uh, I really think that the government uh, signals uh, around banning uh, sales of pure ICE vehicles, for example, those are real signals to industry that this is necessary for the health of society and the planet and human flourishing. And that is that clarity should really help mobilise business and investment to make the decisions and, and and rapidly transition, especially when we actually have we know what these technologies are. We we we've just got to to enter the build phase.
1: Yeah, Phil, that's a really good insight is that there's um the need to change is not really up for debate or shouldn't be. But yet, there's this transition period that's required. Some people call that this transition the messy middle because it's going to be mm. difficult uh, meeting industry meeting ever stricter, strict, more stringent emissions requirements on ICES, but also having to develop and invest in new electric vehicle platforms. So you've 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 hinted or you've pointed to the the role of clarity from government in terms of what needs to change, so that there's uh, an industry wide target or a requirement that has to be met. How else do you think we can together achieve this transition? Uh, and how do we make it through this messy middle? Uh, is it going to have to be us customers you know, investing more, putting our hands in our pockets to to, to fund the change? Is it going to be a, what, what other things can be done to assist the transition across to where we need to get to?
2: Well, I think that's a great question, right? We're, we're sort of entering the phase now where Uh, Certainly, in the uh, passenger car market, uh, companies are launching their first mass produced platforms uh, specifically designed for electric vehicles. Um, You know, we see the VW ID3 uh, launching last year uh, and uh, ID4 coming this year, for example. Those first mass produced platforms, they're still a bit expensive compared to normal cars, but they're much more affordable and uh, uh, than uh, many of the electric cars that exist today, those really need to be quite successful in order to start to normalize uh, the consumer expectations uh, and to uh, get more and more people experiencing uh, electric vehicles and uh, perhaps not as inconvenient as uh, as they might look uh, on paper. Uh, so so I think that sort of education, uh, that uh, success of those first mass-produced platforms, uh, and working with uh, consumers to, you know, change behaviours uh, to uh, uh, perhaps prepare to uh, take a coffee when they uh, uh, stop on the highway to uh, to refuel uh, instead of just doing it five minutes and coming on. Um, those uh, those sorts of uh, behaviour changes and expectations. Uh, we can only do that through dialogue and keeping up that dialogue between the uh, the industry, uh, governments that shape the policy and, uh, and, and consumers. Um, and for sure, there'll be uh, things which consumers uh, are expecting, which are different. So, you know, we need to move people, we need to move things around. We want to do that as convenient as possible. Um, but are the expectations these days uh, with so many people living in a uh an urban center is the expectation that we use our personal vehicle for every movement you know no it's shifting it's uh, perhaps shared ownership or different sorts of vehicles or or public transport uh so uh, what does it really mean to move people and stuff around Uh, and interplay of what the customer thinks and the technological uh um uh, solutions which uh, which are available, I think that really impacts the the, the end result uh, in, in in detail, and you know we we need these first platforms to be uh, successful, um, but whether or not we're all going to have an electric car in our garage when we're living in
0: a city centre, uh, I, I I wonder. Yeah, that that interplay I think is i think you hit the mark on that there phil because i think we're all having these discussions with amongst friends right in the pub or wherever we may be we're thinking about you know we had there's some common challenges that we will talk about and concerns we might have with ev either be infrastructure or maybe range anxiety how far you know can my car run without charging these are all these are all well documented um but for for you, Phil, like what are the key challenges and opportunities? You, opportunities you foresee, and um, and are there any concepts or or topics that you feel aren't really being discussed, but really need to be discussed? I touched on earlier about you know me not charging my bike, and so you know having to change my mindset and remembering to charge my bike. Or uh, do we need to look beyond you know? The tailpipe, that um, and and that look at sourcing sustainable materials in the EV space that go into making of these new vehicles. You know, what are what are some of these things that aren't being talked about commonly uh, in the public domains, but we should really be focusing on?
2: Yeah, I think there's probably a couple of areas where we need to be a lot more aware. Uh, one is this whole circular economy. Um, so we talked already about the high amount of materials, new minerals, which aren't above the ground at the moment, which we need to extract in order to, to service this uh, change to renewable transport and renewable energy. Um, once those things are above the ground, we need to make sure that we, when they finish their end of life, we are able to recycle them and put them back in at the beginning uh, for the next generation product. Um, that isn't always easy to get right. From a, in terms of economic value, uh, you know, there are challenges that we um, we see already in plastics, single-use plastics, uh, in uh, consumer electronics, where it's still this uh, make, use, dispose culture which we're trying to to shift. I think the automotive industry is relatively far down the path in terms of recycling, you know, lots of uh, metal recycling, uh, uh, and uh, end of life recycling targets already in place uh, in uh, various parts of the world. Uh, but we have to make sure that some of these uh, uh, more exotic uh, uh, materials which are you know, complex to extract from the uh, final product, that there is a value loop uh, to bring them back to the beginning. Uh, and uh, we see the uh, um, legislation uh, coming in, in across Europe, for example, on uh, uh, recycling batteries uh, in anticipation of, of this challenge. So, so there's some good focus there. And making that type of um, information on recyclability and uh, reuse, um, making it valuable for a consumer decision, I think still needs some some work uh, it's very difficult as a consumer even somebody who kind of knows something about it to know whether or not if i buy something is this actually recyclable uh, again you know the single-use plastics you know biodegradable plastics are not actually that great for the environment they don't you can't just throw them in your home compost and expect them to decompose um so uh um there is a lot of complexity from a uh, to, to navigate consumers and uh, help bring the circular economy into uh, consumer decisions. I think another topic which is important for the transition period is uh, sustainable fuels. Uh, we haven't um, uh, got a lot of sustainable fuels across the world, uh, so biofuels or fuel from uh, from, from food waste, or or even um, plastic and and paper waste, perhaps. Um, But does that give us a a sort of way of addressing the climate challenge through the transition period, uh, and sort of accelerating it a bit by using low carbon, sustainable fuels in the existing vehicle fleet? Um, Obviously, there's a lot of other things that we need the biosphere for. Um, but uh, we see in you know, Scandinavia that uh, diesel there is uh, predominantly uh, made uh, from, from biodiesel for many years from the uh, fast, you know, from the forests, uh, large amounts of forest which they have available uh, to use for that sort of uh, energy source in Scandinavia. So there could be areas where we can use sustainable fuels uh, better to help uh, bring uh, more consumers into the low carbon world Without expecting them to uh, to immediately uh, have to buy uh, the new technologies of uh, battery materials, so there's a, there's an interplay uh, that we can look at there to uh, to maximise the transition benefits.
1: Yeah, Phil, I guess those carbon neutral li- liquid transport fuels also give uh, more life to the the applications that are more difficult to electrify. So I guess. Um, heavy-duty trucks, long-haul trucks potentially could could be, have a much lower carbon footprint uh, before they can get electrified by using some of these um, low carbon or zero carbon fuels as a way of transition um, to give us just that extra advantage in terms of lowering the carbon footprint.
2: Uh, yeah, I agree, Tim. It's, um, yeah, it seems to have uh, uh, got a little bit quieter on that sort of topic. Um, with the push to the, the ultimate solution of electrification. Um, but uh, there's so many vehicles around the world, of course, which are going to have a long, long lifetime, uh, and they're going to use fuel. Um, and we need to uh, do what we can to move those off the fossil fuel. Um, and uh, bio, biofuel, sustainable fuels, is
1: a way of doing that. Yeah, it's kind of unfortunate that biofuels have had such a difficult History, I guess, in terms of uh, you know stops and starts and political changes, and uh, I do th- I do agree. I think the average vehicles is used for more than ten years, which means many of them are used for twenty years. So we're going to have we're going to have liquid fuel based vehicles around for a long time, um, and we're going to need to be finding ways of making their carbon footprint uh, lower for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to change the change gear slightly uh, if I can, Phil. Um, and uh, looking more technically, because a lot of our listeners are mm. interested in the future of technology, after treatment technology, and emissions control technology in particular. Uh, we're in a round of discussions globally, which are focused on a uh, kind of post Euro six EPA twenty ten uh, standard. So in Europe, th- there's active discussion going on about the potential for Euro seven. We've got carbs moved already on uh, on, on its new standard, but EPA with the, with the new administration is clearly going going to be uh, actively developing a um, a regulation for North America for, for the U.S. market for um, something to align, I guess, in some way with CARB. We've got China, uh, a, a potential China seven discussion starting this year, already early early yeah. stage discussion, and that's going to push, push on road discussion there as well.
2: Yeah.
1: On road, uh, actively happening in China. Mm-hmm. And that's going to push things in terms of uh, certainly a lower NOx limit. We're going to expect um, on-road testing, uh, you know, an extension of real driving emissions and on-road uh, on-road testing of vehicles. Durability gets pushed, of course. End of life requirements, even N2O standards. Um, the boundary conditions—that's an active discussion in Europe. You know, much broader boundary conditions, or even no boundary conditions. Um, so, how do you see how do you see the next phase, the the Euro Seven? Uh, standards developing and where do you think the focus of those standards will be in terms of of, of actual requirements
2: yeah so uh, I think you've outlined some of the uh, some of the areas already right and uh, uh, the real world effects tightening those uh, um, conformance factors uh, that puts an emphasis on lower temperature performance again uh, so how do you manage temperature when the system is too cold? um so those are the areas where and they've been the eternal areas really um for for this industry where where focus will still still be and uh, that whole it comes back again to that whole system dynamic you know at some point the catalyst can't work you know at uh, 100 degrees c for example it needs it needs to be hotter than that so you need the system to generate some extra heat to help the catalyst Work and so, how do you manage uh, the the system uh, to give you the heat, which gives you the catalytic efficiency to remove the pollution under that ever widening range of range of conditions? Um, and I think you know, that's one of the reasons for having a double uh, urea injector um, to get uh, better control of of that uh, moving systems as close as possible, changing uh, exotherm. Uh, you know, actually deliberately putting fuel into the exhaust so that it, keeps, it reacts on the catalyst and keeps it above a certain temperature by generating heat on the catalyst itself. Uh, all those uh, engineering uh, solutions come into play and interact with the uh, ever expanding uh, temperature windows of the, of the, of the catalysts themselves. Uh, and, and I think the biggest area for gain is still in that system and heat management uh, area you know
1: you know the, the the issue of heat and and energy <clears throat> in the system to 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 allow the the, uh, the catalyst and the catalyst system to be sufficiently active of course hence to this uh, the issue of the the famous trade off between fuel efficiency and, and emissions uh, which is something we've been discussing for 10 15 20 years even um, and i remember having discussions over the years where there's uh, it's often said that the emissions requirements are too strict because there's too much of a fuel penalty, but yet we've seen technology introduced consistently over the years, which has got more fuel efficient and still met the, the tight emission standards. Do you think with the post-Euro 6 EPA 10 future requirements, we do risk straying into an area where there's, there will be a fuel energy efficiency penalty uh, beyond what's reasonable in order to achieve ultra, ultra, ultra low emissions in, very cold or, you know, very extreme boundary conditions. Do you think the danger is we could go too far on on emissions requirements at the cost of fuel efficiency, or is there a good balance in the discussion?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's always it's always a bit of a balance. I mean, if we go back to the start of the heavy duty uh, um, emissions legislation, there was always that debate between SCR and EGR. And one of the things which uh, helped SCR with all of its extra componentry and uh, urea injection and things like that win mm-hmm. was the uh, was the fact that you could actually tune for higher fuel efficiency compared to the EGR solutions which tended to uh, uh, to hurt fuel efficiency. So uh, yeah, it's been a long uh, a long debate, and as you say, it's usually uh, being able to be increasing fuel efficiency and Increasing the uh, uh, the cleanliness of the exhaust pipe. Uh, I think uh, that balance will maintain. I think there is um, relatively small uh, fuel efficiency impacts from managing your heat. You know, it's not zero, but it is uh, it is um, it, it, it is small compared to uh, you know some of the things around the whole system. So, uh, you know, how efficiently can you do your air conditioning? What are the aerodynamics of the vehicle? Uh, what are the uh, efficiency of the combustion uh, in, in the uh, cylinder itself? All those things, I think, uh, um, give much more, many more options for uh, improving uh, fuel efficiency. Um, yes, it gets offset a little bit by temperature management needs of the, of the catalytic system, um, but I think... On balance, you're still end up making better fuel efficiency, and I think that trend will will continue. I don't think we'll get to the point where we tip everything so hard against fuel efficiency to manage the catalytic system that uh, that the end consumer on the road will uh, will notice uh, uh, um, worse fuel efficiency. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I just think there are too many levers um, to continue improving efficiency.
1: I guess there's still there's of air quality concerns um, in pollution hotspots. You know, big cities, uh, even even in uh, very developed countries. So you can't you can't deny the need for another step. Um, Definitely, uh,
2: I think uh, you know we had the case in the UK recently of uh, a little girl who 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 died tragically and uh, uh, of an asthma attack or some respiratory uh, problem. Uh, and it was found in the court that it was directly uh, contributed to by the air pollution from the busy road in London which she lived in, that she lived on. Uh, and with London's air pollution being uh, worse than uh, WHO recommendations, uh, that there was a certain um, you know, binding that that air pollution had contributed to her death. Now, air pollution isn't 100% because of transport, but uh, certainly transport, Still provides a, a large uh, contribution to uh, to the quality of the air that we breathe, especially in an urban environment. Uh, and uh, so, the need to continually focus on air pollution through this transition period has not has not gone away. Now, the, the beauty of an electric vehicle is, uh, uh, yes, it addresses climate change, but of course, it also gives you uh, zero pollution uh, effectively at the at the tailpipe. Uh, and uh, lower noise pollution as well, so you win all these extra things from uh, from transitioning to electric vehicles. Um, but uh, it does not discount the fact that uh, um, we we need to keep pushing on the uh, cleanliness of ICES because they are impacting quality of life. And uh, as we've seen there, the first case in the UK uh, being of uh, air pollution attributing to us individuals that uh, de- early death.
0: Well, Phil, I, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today. Um, I think these kind of discussions make make us even miss the conferences we used to have, mm. you know, around the world. These kind of interactive discussions you, uh, you had on the stage or, you know, during lunch, it's something we, we certainly miss. Uh, and hopefully we can get back to, to pretty soon. Um, I mean, uh, us at, at Argus, we will have our um, vehicle emissions event in June, June 15th to the 17th, where we'll, uh, we're combining all of our usual conferences we have around the world, be it in Asia, Europe, uh, and the Americas, we'll be we combining it all into one in June, um, and we definitely hope to see you and all the listeners there. Uh, but again, Phil, just thanks very much for for your time today. Do you have any closing remarks or anything you'd like to say?
2: No, a great conversation. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the industry, the whole automotive industry and uh, uh, the supporting industries to it have done some wonderful things over the past uh, hundred years. Uh, And I can see that the industry is at the forefront of leading into the future challenges uh, when I compare to other industry segments. Uh, you know the automotive industry is is really truly leading uh, this transition to uh, a cleaner healthier world so glad to be uh, a part of this podcast uh, talk around some of that Uh, thank you for having me uh, today George and Tim
0: thanks for gracing us with your presence and we definitely will have you on again but um, for those listening thanks very much for listening to this is so exhausting podcast today please do not forget to like subscribe or follow depending on how you are listening to us today and more importantly because we do need your feedback and this is certainly an industry uh, podcast so do send us a message on who you'd like to hear from and perhaps questions you'd like for us to ask them as we aim to best serve our podcast community but yeah thanks very much um and yeah have a great day